recorded live from the mats of radical MMA in New York City, the Martial Culture Podcast. Your source for in-depth combat sports and martial arts insights with Coach Renee Dreyfus and Matt Peters. Ring the bell and let's get it on. Martial Culture Podcast, we're back again for another episode. You guys are in for a treat today. You're going to love this episode. So we've got some great people in the studio with us. But real quick, let's talk about our sponsors. We've got NutriChefNYC.com. Check them out for some great food. Delivered direct to your door. NutriChefNYC at gmail.com. And then thankful for ChristopherMedia.net for hosting our show and distributing it on the Christopher Media Network. And listen to all their shows. Find them on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, now going to be on SoundCloud. So check that out. Renee, how are you? I'm great, Matt. How are you? Doing fantastic. We got some people in the studio with us. Yes, two great, great friends of mine and really honored. And I'm so glad you guys took some time to come down here. I know you guys are both very busy. But we have uh, uh, Professor Ken Eng, uh, who runs a Class 1 MMA in uh, Brooklyn. Phenomenal, phenomenal striking coach. And I'm so happy to uh, be working together with him to develop fighters. And just very proud to call my friend. And then uh, welcome to the podcast, Ken. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my honor to share the mics with you. And also someone you have known for, God, it's got to be 15 years now. Uh, close to it, yes. Close to help me train, condition me for my fights. No better strength and conditioning guru around. He's also worked with some tremendous uh, UFC caliber and Abu Dhabi caliber athletes. But he's segued into different different disciplines. And I can say I've never met anyone who is such a renaissance man in so many fields. But also, uh, most people don't realize that my friend Jilson here, Jilson Oliveira, is an old-school Brazilian fighter and has a tremendous uh, background in both karate, kickboxing, and uh, and even some grappling arts, too. And he has worked with MMA fighters, both teaching them techniques as well as uh, strength conditioning. And he's just a, a brilliant analytical mind for all aspects of the fight game and the conditioning and the strength game. So welcome, uh, Mr. Oliveira. No, thank you, Rene. <laughs> thank you, Matt, for, for having me today. I'm very pleased to and honored as well to, to be here with uh, Professor Ken, which is, I know as well, to be a very impressive coach. And I know that, I, I know that you guys are going to love tonight, today. Today's going to be a great, great show. Yeah. So how about the UFC last night? Did you, did you enjoy it, Matt? I did enjoy it. Some great fights. I think the entire event was worth the price of admission. Oh, yeah. Um, Professor Ken, your thoughts? It was amazing. Uh, it was an amazing display of jiu-jitsu. I'm, I'm not a grappling man. I'm a, a striking, uh, striking coach. But, uh, oh, that that's was not like, true. People, you, that's a lie. <laughs> that is a lie. Jake, Professor Ken is an excellent judoka, no. too. But so that he's just some, humble. That was some beautiful submissions, especially yeah. that uh, yeah, suplex to the armbar. What, oh. what an amazing, amazing uh, finish. Unbelievable. I want to talk about that in a little bit. But, Jelson, your thoughts as well? Um, to be honest with you, uh, just to be really clear, I really focused most on the, the last two fights. When I wanted, I really, those were the fights that I really wanted to watch. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I think that it was worth uh, the time that we spent watching them because it, they did bring new ways to examine to the fight know, game. To, yeah, to break yeah. down, to break down what they've done, why they did it, and just understand that, you know what, there is more to what we do in yeah. terms of martial arts, in terms of disciplines. It's just a matter of being open to try new things and, and understand that, you know what, and the more open your mind is, more you will learn, 
and more amazing things and fights as we had last night will take place. Yeah, you know, uh, I always say that uh, the martial arts has evolved so much in the last 20 years, and you can see it's not done evolving. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to explore. But I really want to ask you guys, you know, because I I tend to talk so much, I want to throw the floor to you guys first and foremost, but I want to talk about Tony Ferguson's striking and versus uh, Kevin Lee and how, you know, I'm I'm actually a big fan of Tony Ferguson, but I, I always felt this striking was a little bit, you know, their holes, and I felt that Kevin Lee really took advantage of that. And I just want to throw the floor to you and your thoughts. Maybe you agree with me, disagree with me, um, or just, you know, how you guys approach, how you analyze uh, that, that the stand-up portion of that. And Because mm-hmm. and, I, I generally a little bit focus more on the jiu-jitsu, and we could talk about the great submissions, the, the dumb armbar, the, the, you know, armbar from... Um, from uh, uh, Dimitri Johnson and also the the great uh, finish from the Italian female fighter whose mm-hmm. name escapes me, oh, but man. she was amazing. Yeah. But anyway, I want to throw the floor to you guys and just give me your thoughts on the striking uh, you saw last night and any any fight, not just the, the Kevin Lee Ferguson one. Well, I think uh, Tony Ferguson, like he is this uh, just an orthodox and usual movement. Yeah, and I think that's good. You know, sometimes it, I think it's good sometimes because it like throws people off. Because you, know, you used to be dealing with people that move in a certain manner, and when yeah. they all of a sudden they deal in a manner that you're never used to, it just like it's hard to get a beat on them. Like, you know, it's, it's easy for them to sneak some things in. Mm-hmm. You know, things coming from an unusual angle and things of that nature. But um, like, I haven't watched that many of his fights, but he's very successful know. in some of his previous fights, yeah. and really, especially the Dos Anjos fight. He, he was able to do that to throw people off. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's funny. There's a great Mark Twain quote. And you, you remind me of it. It says, the, the number one fencer in the world, the number one swordsman in the world, doesn't have to fear the number two swordsman. He has to fear the man with no knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is we were talking about reality in the last podcast. Um, when you get too into your boxes, into your, into your I'm, I'm this, I'm this, and you, you read, you, you, you understand that, okay, after the jab, he's going to throw the cross hook. Well, no. How about he just does a diving headbutt because yeah. he was never untrained. Mm-hmm. The untrained fighter is the most unpredictable fighter. 100% and, agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ferguson is very unpredictable. You see there's one fight where he does actually the salsa dancing. Yeah. I don't know if it's salsa. So it looks like salsa. But you know, he actually does a salsa dance and then he whack, wrecks the guy. The guy's like, why are you dancing in front of me? <laughs> like, what are you doing? You know? And uh, it's totally unpredictable. But at the same time, you know, I'm not really... Yeah, unpredictability is great, but there's something to be said for technical precision too yes, you know yes. i think it's it's always that the balance you know mm-hmm. but i i don't want to talk too much let, let you guys know no, i 100 percent agree with you i think you have to have a good technical base mm-hmm. and in in between there then you have the unorthodox stuff that comes out like like I, the way i train my fighters is that uh suppose you throw a jab you know there's only a certain number of things the person can do you know he can slip come back across you know he can you know counter off a, a low kick or something there's, there's there's a limited number of things you can do uh, you know, parry and throw a knee. There's a limited things you could do. So how I train my guys is that after they throw a jab, you know, they also have to practice every every counter possible to counter whatever counter they're going to throw. So I mean, I mean, it's kind of monotonous practicing all these things that uh, for the counters, the counters. You know, you always have to have the counters for counters. You know, counters to counters to counters. But you know, when a guy throw something that's like not, not usual, not the usual counter, then it's like it kind of throws you off. So I think you have to have a base. You definitely have to have a good base, good technical base, you know, basic swins fights. And everything else is gravy. Everything else icing on the cake. So I, I like to have a lot of icing on the cake after you have a good base. Jill, what are your thoughts, buddy? 
I believe that there are many, many layers. Um, when, you, when you face someone who is very unorthodox, you know, and, and I, even though I don't like him necessarily as a person, I have to talk about John Jones oh, yeah. when he came around. Nobody seemed to be ready to counter him, you know, efficiently. Yeah. And until, he had a very interesting style, the way he uses his hands and he paused. Yes. He plays with your grips. So, so as Professor Ken was saying, someone has a, a base, they, has, they have a foundation, and now from this point forward is about the level of confidence they have to try new things. First at training, right, at the dojo, at the academy, and then in the real fight where the emotions kick in. And usually when people get a little block, right, they, emotionally they, they get, I don't know if I can mess it up because everybody's watching, I don't want to look bad, <laughs> and they just don't try new things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So this is my first layer. The second layer is, in terms of perspective, is how can you train for someone so unorthodox, as example, uh, Ferguson or Jones. Mm-hmm. How can you get sparring partners? Yeah. Or, or Thompson or Machida. Machida, Machida came in. Yes, yeah. he, was a, he was a puzzle that people yeah. were like, oh, he's not Muay Thai, he's Karate. Yeah. And, and suddenly it was like, oh, Karate doesn't work, doesn't work. Well, guess what? You know, if you're not prepared for it, mm-hmm. it's going to hit you. And uh, Machida was the next one because, you know, I'm yeah. Brazilian, so of course I got to bring my boy in. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, how can you have... How can you have training partners that are, not they can mimic, it's not about mimicking, mm-hmm. is how efficient you are when it comes to throwing your strikes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can play southpaw, but how efficient am I? So how much really I'm helping you because I can mimic the southpaw stance, but I am not as efficient as McGregor. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. yeah. So, so it's something to, to yeah. keep in mind. Like the orthodox is, is matters. Like how can you get ready for it? But you, you, you as a martial artist, you need to be ready for whatever comes. Exactly. Don't get distracted yeah. Yeah. if yeah. somebody's dancing south in front of you. Exactly. You. you know that is such a great point. And let me tell you, you know, Professor Ken and I were just actually. Oh, just, actually, first, uh, sorry, please sorry. Uh, stop calling me Professor Ken. No, thank you for the respect from <laughs> Professor Gilson and Master Renee. But uh, I'm no professor by any means. Oh, but, is, uh, okay. yeah, continue. Yeah. I will. I will respect that request. But there are very call few me martial. Professor, though, please. I will call you. Know, call you Professor Matt. <laughs> Professor Matt. Yeah. Please don't. <laughs> All right, Mr. Ken. So, um, uh, but, you know, we were just actually working out, and I was talking about headlocks. You know, most jiu-jitsu guys will never do a headlock mm-hmm. on someone else. But I actually saw, unfortunately, a jiu-jitsu, very high-level jiu-jitsu guy get put in a headlock and get put to sleep by someone with no training. And uh, you get so into your sports mode mm-hmm. that you expect this move, this move, this move. You don't expect the unexpected. Yes. And this is one reason I tell all my students, and one of my students in particular, he's a great guy, but he hates when I say I'll tell us him. And I love him. He knows exactly who he is. He's a wonderful guy. He's a fantastic medalist. He's won tons of tournaments. But he hates training with spazzy beginners. Mm-hmm. And this is no knock to him. He's, he knows he's going to listen to this. And, but he hates training with spazzy beginners. And I said, you have to do it. Because spazzy energy is the most unorthodox energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have no clue what to do. They could headbutt you, could they, you know, fall on your ankle and hurt your ankle, they could crash your knee. And he's like, oh, but that gets old so fast. I'm like, no. It is training your fight reflex because they are the most unpredictable, the untrained, spazzy, crazy person who also has a lot of strength and a little bit of that like mm, psycho strength, you know, where they're just like adrenaline and I love training with those guys because it helps me keep it real. I have no clue what they're doing, so I have to like lock down. And then, Jillson, you're saying, 
you know, um, expect the unexpected. This is, that is the unexpected. And striking, you know, I've, I've seen a, a number of boxing matches that work on a boxing gym. And, and, you know, you see a guy with no training, but, you know, just like really aggressive, throwing like, you know, Krav Maga type, you know. And then the guy actually, the really skillful boxer, has to figure it out. And even Mayweather had one fight like that. Who I forget who it was, but it was, it was like um, the guy was not so technical. He was really rough. And in the first few rounds, Mayweather was like, and then he figured him out and he got him. But he had to like take those two rounds. Do you remember who it was? Ah, damn it. Um, I forgot who it was. But it was a great example of like a super technician being like, whoa, that is not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to do that. That's wrong. Okay. Oh, wait, wait. Okay. Compute, compute. Okay. Now I got it. But it took him two rounds to, uh, to adjust. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I always say I get into martial arts because of self-defense in this. And, and let me tell you, you know, that spazzy, crazy street energy is, is exactly that. It's, it's the street energy. So I always enjoy the thrill of training with someone who's like super, super strong, totally untrained, and they're going to without even wanting to, meaning to, throw an elbow back at your head yeah. or something, you know? And I said, oh, number one rule in my academy is always protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Always protect yourself. And I'll tell you, you know, Ferguson, though, he was unex- unorthodox, and he had some interesting stuff, but I felt that he, he really, he was losing that mm-hmm. fight yeah, yeah. until the end. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and, sure. and he yeah. was not protecting himself. His hands were low. He was unorthodox, but he was just a little bit of holes. No, no disrespect. I think he's fantastic, but... I think, um, you know, he's maybe, unless he fixes those problems, may not be champion for too long. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think uh, being unorthodox of uh, not a good base or mm. having solid basics is no good. Yeah. You know, yeah. It can only get you so far. That being said, it, it's interesting, you know, because um, he won off the guard, and let's bring it back to a little bit of jiu-jitsu. And, you know, he's an Eddie Bravo student from the 10th Planet system, and the whole concept of the 10th Planet was originally let's make guards that are very MMA relevant. And he dis- displayed a really good guard when he was, not just because he submitted him, because he actually had the armbar attack. He had, he had a few armbar attacks, and he was not eating any ground and pound. I mean, a couple of shots here or there, but nothing much, where you've seen other guys in the guard just get completely dominated. And Kevin Lee is no slouch in jiu-jitsu. The only problem with Ferguson was when he got mounted. And his mount escape was terrible. He almost lost the fight. And he was really saved by the bell. And I would say that, you know, he has to train the mount escape with more strikes involved. He was really flailing, and he made every mistake in the book. Again, no disrespect, but he was really saved by that bell. But his guard work was phenomenal, and he wound up winning the fight. But he does have a lot of holes. And I'm a big Ferguson fan, a really big Ferguson fan. I hope he... he, he um, uh, plugs those hold because he, I think he has the potential to evolve to a mm-hmm. great fighter. You know who's unorthodox, who I really like is Dominic Cruz, mm-hmm. and also um, Cody Garbrandt is very unorthodox too. Um, what are your 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 take on um, on those like the new modern striking games and, and how 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 it's evolved and how now switching your stance, being unorthodox, some of those moves are becoming orthodox. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really love the way uh, striking is evolving now. Like, uh, I, I started out in Muay Thai, and uh, when I first started out, when I'd spar, uh, my coach, who's like one of the, he's one of the greatest Muay Thai fighters of all time, Koban Lochai Mai Tong, and he was my coach for, my mentor for many years. And when I start, first started sparring... Um, he had an epic war with Ramon Deckers, two, actually. Yes, right? he had... Um, two? Three. Four. four. Four, right, that's right, four. four. He won, I'm yeah, sorry. They won, it, it, Koban <laughs> won two, uh, Raymond Deckers won two. 
And uh, see, did, see, I have to, yeah. I have to shut up and let the strikers talk. No, it's, it's actually kind of crazy story. <laughs> if I want to go off tangent a little bit, from what I understand, though, uh, from what I understand, because uh, uh, he won the first one, Raymond Decker won the second one, he won the third one. From what I understand from Koban, uh, and this is how it related to me, when he was when he fought him the fourth time, he didn't know he was fighting him. He didn't know he was fighting him. He said, uh, "I mean, if, if you won two, you don't need to." Two to one, you don't need to fight him a uh, fourth time. But he didn't know he was going to fight him. He flew him over there, and when he, he thought he was fighting someone else, when he came out to the ring, he said, uh, Raymond Decker showed up, and uh, he was like, oh, he was, so, he was so mad that he just kind of just gave, gave him the fight. Remember, that's what he told me. I, I don't know how, if that's true or not, but that's what he related to me. So mm, I'm just going well, by what he said. It's but definitely, it's a funny story. Yeah, definitely yeah. would be not enjoyed as a, as a coach. Yeah. I hate when my fighters were switched on me, on my students, and... Uh, I personally didn't didn't know any of my fighters when I was fighting, but I know when we was working with some of my, my fighters that they were, they were supposed to fight this guy, this guy, this guy. We had the same thing happen with the, a fight coming up with uh, one of my students, and they switched the fighter over and over again. It, it it's not it's yeah. not a good experience. Yeah. It's that it doesn't does not fun, you know. But anyway, your Jilson, your thoughts on striking and how it's evolved, and because you, you you always talk about this, and, and you have some wonderful things to say always about. Can you can finish in case you oh. have oh, yeah. So oh, uh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So anyway, uh, I apologize. <laughs> Like I said, I should shut He's uh, one of the greatest <laughs> of all time. Uh, so I guess when I was sparring, uh, when I first started out, I, I remember I was sparring, sparring this guy that's very tall. I remember, I'm very short. I'm five foot eight, And the partner I was sparring was like 6'2", uh, and it was 6'2", uh, like a big guy too, like muscular. So for me to close the distance, I would just, I do a jab, cross, round kick and my, with my right leg, and I'm not orthodox. I did a round kick, and I let the right leg bring me closer to him to close the distance to, to continue striking. And uh, so I changed stance. And kind of Koban kept telling me, don't change your stance. What are you doing? Don't change your stance. And that's like the old way of doing things, you know. And like then I, at that point, I was like, wait a second. Why am I, why am I, if it's working for me, why am I not doing it, you know? So, I mean, at that point, I started realizing that, you know, it's like uh, things must evolve to get better. And if it's working for me, you should do it, you know. Or if something works for my students, we should include it in our system. So it's all about, like, not listening to our, I mean, we might have to respect our teachers, I mean, that's where we came from. That's where we get the knowledge from. But we also have to not, not listen to them as, like, it's gospel. Whatever they say is not gospel. I mean, take their information. Learn from it. Get it. But also use your mind. Think for yourself. You know, it's like, ultimately, martial arts, for, for me, it's like self-discovery and the, the truth, you know. It's like kind of a Bruce Lee philosophy, which I, I, I mean, I love Bruce Lee's philosophy. I'm not a Jeet Kune Do man, but I subscribe to his philosophy. But it's like, you know, we have to evolve. We have to use what works. And... That MMA, that they have proven what works. Because it doesn't work, you can't use it in MMA, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, that's the testing ground, that's right, the right. laboratory. Absolutely. What Absolutely. works, that is what works. So these guys switching stances, it works. So, yeah. like a lot of, you talk to a lot of old school Muay Thai guys, you know. Or boxing of, too. Boxing guys kind of, hate switching stances mm-hmm, very often, yeah. not always. There, there's some boxers who, who did the switcheroo, but I worked, we worked with one boxer, and he's like, no, never switch stance. Never switch. You're the orthodox southpaw. Yeah. Just stay there. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you, Justin, for yeah. Give me the floor. <laughs> You're welcome. For, for me, like evolving, when it comes to striking, evolving in MMA, uh, to be honest with you, I've been there since the beginning. I'm from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So all the UFC fever in Rio de Janeiro, I was part of it. Uh, and n- not only observing or training, dealing with the guys from the UFC at that time, 93, 94, 95, 96, basically seeing them every day working out from Copacabana, the same gym where I was. I started my, my career as a strength coach. And I think that it has evolved 
a lot as well. So I know that your question was in regard of the striking, but grappling also evolved. Everything, of course, of course. So when it comes to the striking, my way of seeing things is, and that's why I, I pulled a type of a parallel observation when it comes to, to grappling, is that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was dominant in the first years until people started adapting to the ground game. Yeah. So you're going to be dominant, not switching your stance as a striker, until you start switching your stance, and then you're going to catch everybody by surprise. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be as dominant as Royce was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I believe, like, imagine you, like, going for a striking game with a Taekwondo fighter. He switches stance all the time. Yeah. And I guarantee you that he's going to kick you in the head mm -hmm. very soon. Yeah, yeah. If you were never trained with an opposite stance. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And very quick, very accurate. So for me, evolving means you must be open to try new things. But to try new things, first you need to learn new things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So bouncing off what Ken said, sometimes you, you, the coach tells you to just do one thing and that just, just one thing on because he learned this way, was passed down to him this yeah. way, and we respect. At a certain point, based on how far you want to go, you will, you, you will be challenged to think for yourself and follow your heart, follow your heart and follow your path, your warrior path, you know what, I'm feeling limited, I feel the need to learn new things, and also because not false modesty, just like, you know what? I can learn a little faster than some other students, no disrespect to them, but I have this, I'm thirsty, you know, for mm -hmm. knowledge. I need to go somewhere else to learn new ways. And unfortunately, many coaches, they just like, no, 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 no. This is going to be confusing, which I understand as a coach mm -hmm. myself, I do understand. But there are students that you need to let go. Let him go, let her go. And she's not going to abandon you or your way of seeing things, but you must give them the opportunity to go to different contexts, test what you've been teaching them, unless you don't want to be proved wrong, which sometimes <laughs> is the case. Yeah, of course. It's so, it's so and learn new things so they can advance faster. So if you do care about the students and or fighters who now you have in your hand and prepare them for a fight, you have to respect their needs to learn something new when the, the drive is present. And just, you know what, go train here, do a camp in, with another coach, learn how, and bring them back, and let's, and let's go all involved together. And this is the, primarily is the coach's role, to be open. And the fighters' role, too. You know, I, I know some people, some trainers, they, they, maybe they're not competing or anything like that, but they're extremely closed-minded martial artists. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, you get stuck in what's comfortable. So it's the fighter's role, too. Or sometimes it's the role of the coach to push the fighter yes. to say, do something else. But I'll tell you, every single great instructor I've ever had was open-minded. Whether it goes to my old karate instructor, uh, Miyazaki-sensei, he was like, wow, judo's great. You know, wow, you know, uh, study boxing, study this. We came to my instructors in Japan. A lot of, there was a movement, this is years ago, in the 70s, and, and 60s, where Russian sambo fighters were infiltrating the judo um, uh, ranks and you know in, in infiltrating the tournaments and, and beating them and infiltrating, but you know competing. And they had a different style, a very unorthodox Russian judo style, because they were sambists. 
and they were doing incredibly well. And there was a, a point of part of Japan, of course, they close their mind like, bah, that's bad. And that's, that's always a reaction from certain more you know, traditional people. Mm-hmm. And then there's people like um, um, Kashiwazaki, who is a ground fighting god. Not many people know this, but he, he, he was an amazing ground fighter. And he, was, he cross-trained in, in Russian Samba and wound up winning uh, the championships in Russian Samba and bringing those moves back. So there's a rolling arm bar. Uh, some people call it the swim move. Some people call it the rolling armbar. It's very popular in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They don't realize that that armbar was pioneered by a guy named Yatskevich, Russian judo and sambist, and it's a, a, a fundamental move in judo. It is an absolute fundamental move that never existed until the Japanese fighters went to to to, to cross train with the Russians and brought it back. And now. Every, every, every judo master is like, oh, yes, this is one of our moves. No, it was not. Mm-hmm. Not before 1970s. The rolling armbar was not there. I mean, you had variations because everything existed a little bit. I'm talking, you know, the, the, the more refined variation of this move. I'm sure maybe a thousand years ago some guy did it. But there's a difference between a move and a system around a move. And that system was really refined by the Russians and brought mm-hmm. to judo. And then it, now it's in jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu guys do it all the time. But you don't realize that it, it started its evolution through, through, through the Russian Sambo uh, tradition. And, and open mind is key. It's, it's a move I do all the time. And I took it. I don't use it in the same context, but I adapted it to my rat guard game. And that's like I do it every day. And, and, uh, and it's not a traditional move, but it is for, for my system now. It's open-minded and growing. But I would say this. I would say this. It depends on the level of the student. And, and I've had this experience with, I have a certain style of teaching, and it's not right or wrong. And this other instructor B would have this certain style of teaching the same thing, and it's not right or wrong. Except if you're just starting out your journey, you should stick with this guy for a little bit until you kind of get that sense of his system and how he puts things together. And then when you graduate, you can go to somewhere else. But if you go to somewhere else too early, like you YouTube surf and like, oh, I just learned this and this, you become a technique collector. And I, I, I think you have to understand that any good teacher is teaching systems. And how they put to, together, you, ha- is you, you have to understand and, and, and draw on and graduate. I, I, a couple of podcasts recently, I talked about my student, Chad, and I said this exact same thing, Chad, Chad, don't listen to me anymore. You know, definitely, you know, um, you know, we, we can always do my stuff, but now it's time for you to break the rules. And this, there's an ancient Japanese uh, uh, quote called, or proverb, shuhadi. And shu is a character mamoru, which means to preserve. And that means you learn the tradition. And this is the growth of every fighter. You learn the tradition and you respect it and you preserve it. Then ha, ha is the character to break. Then you get to a point of expertise, so you break that tradition. So you learn the rules, then you learn how to break them. And ri is means to go away from, to, to part from. And you part from that, and you make your own tradition. So preserve, break, and go away and part. And that is, that is an ancient Japanese, probably Chinese too, but I only know it in the Japanese context, but of a warrior and learning tradition, shuhari. It's, it's, a, it, it's essential to growth, and it's been in our martial art knowledge forever, so you guys are not saying anything new. Any legitimate teacher who is interested in their students' growth should tell them, go off and explore, but when they're ready. And, and you know, um, that brings us back to, to the Demetrius Johnson fight. 
You know, that was an armbar. It was submission. But that was not a typical jiu-jitsu submission. Armbar, of course, is. Everybody knows it's an armbar. But the way he did it is different. And let me explain just, and then I'll, I'll throw that back to you. But, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a martial art that is predicated on what Eric Paulson calls a game of real estate, meaning I get side control, and I go to mount, and I go to the back, and I constantly inch up and control more real estate, always control, 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 control. And that theory of control is what defines Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is very different from judo and very different from Russian sambo and very different from catch wrestling. And um, the Japanese judo submission tradition right now, particularly in the judo world, is they're very good and very often way better than Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys at transitional submissions, meaning throw to armbar, throw to this, throw to that, throw to rolling choke. You saw in the last Olympics, there were a number of those where they'd throw and the throw would fail, but just as they're throwing, bam, you go right into the rolling submission. And the, the um, European champions were recent. There was a beautiful example of this where the guy was in the air and he did like a flying born hour choke, what we call born hour, kurumajime, I mean, um, katairijime. And it was, it was amazing, but it was a transitional submission. It wasn't about ca- capturing that real estate. It was in the transition from the throw to the submission. And that is very, very, very uh, uh, indicative of a judo way of thinking, throw to submit. And that is part of the, the traditions of the battlefield styles of jiu-jitsu that fed into judo. Because if you're on a battlefield, you don't want this you know, long-term, you know, ground-fighting war because somebody's going to come over and stick a spear or sword in your back. So the transitional submissions were king for Kitoryu and some of these other, other styles that, that fed into judo. And um, that thinking, because Matt Hume, Dimitri Johnson's coach, is not a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter. He learned his grappling a lot of places, but he was honed in Japan, in the, in the shoot-fighting rings in Japan. And uh, obviously he's, he's absorbed... Some Brazil, a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor there too and all that. So because he's not stupid, obviously he's going to integrate and evolve like we were just talking about. But that submission that Dimitri Johnson done, theoretically, philosophically, is not a Brazilian jiu-jitsu way of thinking. Now, I'm not saying Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys don't do that, but they do it. it's, it's, it's typical of a, of a Japanese orientation of submissions and just shows that, we, okay, we have this real estate, you know, control, 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 submit theory, but these transitional theories to submission, like way, way back when, it was Dustin Hazlitt, he did this great Uchimata throw, which is kicking the leg up, and then he instantly swung his leg over and went into an armbar. It was years ago, but that was a beautiful transitional submission, and unfortunately, it didn't catch on. You know, it's still like, you know, you, you, you want to talk about evolving, but I, I, I think the submission fighting has evolved in, in, in MMA, but it's not evolving in a lot of different directions. We're kind of stuck in our boxes. We're going to do this, we do this, we do this. But I hope that this submission will teach people like, okay, hey, yes, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is great. Of course, I study Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I think it's awesome. But there are other approaches in context which can be very, 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 very um, Effective, And up until that point, if you notice, Dimitri Rantz was doing very, very much a jiu-jitsu style control and, and peppering him with strikes, which was fantastic. And we could talk about that too. But at the finish, he left. He said, this is the time where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that jiu-jitsu positional battle alone and I'm going to do a transitional attack system. 
and uh, very indicative of Sambo, very indicative of, of modern judo, and it was beautiful. It was just fantastic. Everybody's like, I've never seen that before. I'm like, I've seen that before a number of times. Just watch any high-level judo match. Maybe not exactly like that, but you don't see it that much in jiu-jitsu, but you see it all the time in, in judo, in, in Sambo, things like that. Maybe not exactly like that, but very, very, very similar. And so, yeah, I, I, I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but is Brazilian jiu-jitsu the be-all and end-all of martial arts? Absolutely not. Let's evolve and grow and learn and, and explore and, and evolve. And, and, you know, Elio Gracie said, didn't say, oh, I'm going to learn judo and leave it at that. I'm going to learn from this guy and leave it at that. No, he said, let me learn this and evolve. And same with his son and same with their sons and evolving and let's continue that tradition of growing, you know? Um, so that's, that's my take on that, you know? It's, it's, uh, it's always about adding more skills with a great, foundation of basics very well said well thank you <laughs> very well said <laughs> sums it up <laughs> <laughs> any any other thoughts on on last night's fights matt from a from a non you know trained fighter perspective I am, i'm i'm out of, i'm out of depth here there's, there's, there's uh experts in this room right here and i'm just the guy that that uh is along for the ride but it was an amazing i think that um uh what was it uh, i'm losing my mind here Demetrius Johnson obviously was a great fight. What was the other big one? Tony Ferguson. Ferguson, Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee. Lee. What, what, anybody's opinion on Lee, like uh, as a person? I want to bring the, bring the conversation down a little bit. Let's talk I, some I, gossip. Well, you know, I really respect because he had a staph infection. He did. Yes. Yeah. And you know, fighting on his Ivan chest, for, no? on his yes. chest right. yeah. And right. and you know, that seems why he had so much trouble probably making weight. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly, but you know, he's never. I don't think he's ever struggled making weight before. I don't know that much about it, but I'd never heard that before. And he struggled tremendously making weight because he, obviously he was really sick and he was on antibiotics. To do that performance when you're not at your best and really bring it out there and, and just show great technique. And, and you know, if in the first round, if, he, if Ferguson had not been kind of saved by the bell a little bit, it would have been a bad man. He did escape the mount eventually, but he took such a beating. The bell rang. If that had been like halfway through the first round and there was two minutes left, probably Lee would have taken it. I heard Ferguson say he was uh, trying to tire him out. Was there any any uh, truth to that? You guys? Think, well, yeah, you fight? could definitely tire him out by being mounted and let him pound your face. In. <laughs> <laughs> Is he trying to say? I don't that? know if that was the best strategy. <laughs> hey, let me mount, get mounted and <laughs> eat tons of punishment. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like a little bit of a you know, let me save face and try to make it look like I didn't get my butt kicked for the first couple of rounds. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, probably there was some truth to that. I don't know, yeah. um, but. Uh, just it's, maybe not just not the best strategy because like <laughs> one thing one thing is like when you were a boxer and you talk about a, a boxing match and there is a strategy behind of getting the your opponent tired mm-hmm. okay let's consider some things first the gloves are bigger mm-hmm. yeah uh you're not Considered not word at all. There's meaning you're not concerned that the guy's gonna take you down. Mm-hmm. You're not concerned that you're gonna be kicked in the leg, kicked in your rib cage, kicked in the head. Which means, okay, so I'm just I'm gonna do my best to cover myself this way or that way, and I can probably hold myself for a few rounds. You cannot do it in MMA. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's you know that's that's exactly what Mayweather did. You know, like against yeah. McGregor, he's like, okay, let him punch it out. And also, you know, we were talking about the energy systems, and you're a master of this. The energy system development for an MMA fighter, the energy system development for a boxing fighter is totally different. 
you know, I mean, I'm not going to step on your toes in, in terms of that, but obviously you're, you're dealing with aerobic and anaerobic. Next and, episode. Next episode, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Teaser, nice. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so, so and you, again, you know, I, I'm terrible. I forgot the Italian fighter's name, but she's so impressive. Mara Barella? Yes, yes, Barella. yeah. Oh, my God, that girl was something else. Yeah, she was amazing. Did you see that fight? I did, yeah. <sighs> There's some she good fights, some, some really good fights last night. Yeah. Do you think Ferguson um, can take McGregor? Sir, I'll leave it to you guys. Uh, no. Yeah, no. I agree. I agree. I think if he, you know, I'm a big Ferguson fan, and last night I was not impressed with his performance, even though he won. Mm-hmm. But he, 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 you know, the couple other fights, maybe it was the pressure, I don't know, but he, he was like shooting great doubles, shooting samble takedowns. He was a little cleaner with the striking. Even though he won the fight, and his guard was very good. I mean, that was one thing where he excelled, which is why he won the fight there. His guard was very, very good. And this is no trash talk. I'm a big Ferguson fan, for sure. I, I really like that he's so committed in his path, you know. Um, but uh, he had so many holes, and I, I think he's going to have trouble with McGregor. It's McGregor is that bazooka, and he was yeah. open, and he ate a lot of shots from, yeah. from Lee. Yeah, if Lee can do that... If Lee can outstrike him, yeah. what do you think uh, McGregor's going to do? Yeah, <laughs> no. and McGregor, you know, the guy is not stupid. I'm not a McGregor fan. I am not. Let yeah, me repeat no. that. <laughs> but but he, you can't sleep on his his tactical brilliance. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I don't know if we'll ever see McGregor again in the UFC unless they pay him a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And if he's making money, what's he going to do, uh, WWE next or something? Who We're going to pay him a I billion think he's dollars. probably going to buy an island somewhere yeah, yeah, and just yeah. retire. Well, he's got enough money to live for the <laughs> yeah, rest yeah, of yeah, yeah. multiple generations <laughs> of life. So. I mean, you can't fault the guy for all that money. You know? No, right. No, exactly. I'll, I'll let Mayweather punch me for $100 million. <laughs> you know, just, just going back to the, the uh, it's funny because the two, the, the submission, the armbar submission by Demetrius Johnson was very non-jiu-jitsu. The armbar submission by Verdum, textbook, A, B, C, day one Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, Mount back. I mean, you know, take the back, finish from the back. I mean, it was like he was like it was like drilling. Mm-hmm. Look, look like you know one of my white belt students. What they drill. It was it was so funny. It's the same submission, yeah. done completely differently. But both both great. You know, I like, feel bad okay. for uh, Harris. Harris. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that guy. Yeah, I mean, he's a good fighter. Up. But yeah, to him for stepping up. Like that, you know? so, the man, a yeah. real man for stepping well, up. Were they switching him out the day of? Right. Yeah, it's like two hours before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He but he was supposed to fight right. He was supposed to fight on the undercard, so it's not like he wasn't prepared. Yeah. You know, wasn't prepared for. Yeah, that's true, of course. Yeah. But you know, like, I give it to Chad Mendez who took the McGregor, took his fight with McGregor. He was supposedly on a boat somewhere, like eating chicken wings. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're gonna fight in a week. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he 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 almost won that fight a couple yeah. times, and he had no, you know, he had no camp. The guy had no camp. You got to give you know Chad Mendez just. Anyone, anytime, anywhere. Exactly. It's like you got to respect that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you know, this bring. I want to just switch the conversation away from the UFC, and we were talking about like context and things like that, and evolution and martial arts, and it kind of brings us to, to something we always talk about is like you said, if it doesn't work in MMA, it doesn't work, and and a lot of like I think listeners who might come from the traditional world might take. Um, Umbrage, oh. you know, to that, yeah, offense to that, you know, like, hey, I do Aikido, or hey, I do this, or I do whatever, and and I want to explain what are our theories. Now, the thing is, when you take no rules away, and you can you can say like, oh, the UFC is this rule, this rule, this, of course, but the leverages are as close to real combat as it gets. Obviously, you know, if someone sucker punches you from behind, or you know, takes a baseball bat, 
when you're not looking and hits you in the kneecaps or something. It's, it's different. But the techniques themselves are functional. Whereas, you know, um, very often martial artists from uh, more traditional backgrounds, and, you know, I use that lightly because honestly, you know, people think Aikido is traditional and Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not. In terms of the founding of the arts, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is actually older than Aikido because Yeshiba founded Aikido later. Mm-hmm. You know, the founding date of, of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is 1925 and older than Taekwondo. Taekwondo is 1951. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we consider these arts traditional, but most of, most of them are artifacts of the 20th century. They're based on things from the 19th, 17th, 16th century, but, but a lot of them are artifacts of the 20th century, which gets to what I'm talking about in a second. Let's come back to that. But, you know, um, you, know you don't see Aikido really used in the UFC. You don't see... And there's a great video. Do you see that Aikido masked guy who, is, who tested himself against an MMA fighter in a, in a friendly match? It was really good. And, and he's, he's an open-minded guy. And we, we were talking about the last episode where you have to get out of your box. You have to try and evolve. You have to say, okay, I've studied this. Let me go somewhere else. And Roy Dean is an interesting jiu-jitsu black belt who had a start in Aiki, in judo, actually. But then he went to Aikido and then went off to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So he has a very interesting perspective. And I know a lot of people in the taekwondo world who who went from taekwondo to Muay Thai, Mm -hmm. um, including one of my friends, um, Chris Romulo, who's a great great Muay Thai fighter. Uh, We have a seminar coming up with him at this academy. and, and, you know, but started one martial art and, and brought another. But you really, you, you see pieces of certain martial arts work in MMA. But when you get like a, a pure Taekwondo fighter who is not cross-chained in Muay Thai or a pure, um, you know, uh, traditional, traditional karate from a more Japanese-style training method, not the Machida style. And, and you know, while the Machidas are Shotokan, they don't train the way they train in Japan. And I can say that because I train in the JKA in Tokyo. And I can look at Machida's training methods, and they're very, very different. Yeah. There's different training methods. Um, and we get from, from that background or um, from the Wadodyu or these other more other styles of, of karate, and they, you just don't see them, or Tai Chi or any of these Chinese martial artists, martial arts, you don't see them really functional in MMA. And so then the question, the question is, why do these martial arts exist if they're not working? Now, there's two places we can go here. We can say, well, the UFC is bullcrap, and it works, or it's rigged, or, you know, or the rules interfere with this and that. And you can go there, but that's not true. That is not true. And, or you can say, okay, there's a reason why these things aren't working. It didn't mean they didn't work in another context, or they're, it's we don't understand that the why they developed. So I'll give you a good example. And some people might know that I, I studied Aikido Jitsu, which is very similar to Aikido. And I want to tell you, do you know that the word Aikido is a very new word, and the word Aikido Jitsu is a very new word. The actual names of these martial arts are very different. Most of the traditional hand-to-hand martial arts of Japan were called just Heiho, which means. Um, Fighting ways, you know, Hei is warrior and Ho is way, way of the warrior. Now, not way like the, the 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 spiritual way. I mean, it's just like things warriors train. You know, very very technical. Um, um, and or soldier, I should say, Hei is more like soldier, not warrior. So soldier art, soldier art. You know, um, then you would have like the name of the the clan. So it'd be like uh, Take Takeda Ryu. Something, 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 heiho, right? And that's usually with the name of the style, which is Takeda's family style of fighting. 
That's really what it would translate. It wouldn't be Aikido or Aikijitsu, but they would group them, what they did, into things. So if you fought with a gun, which is actually people don't realize samurais had a martial art of musketry, um, and they would have their musketry art. They would have their horseback riding art. A lot of samurais would learn swimming because if you're in armor and you don't swim, you drown. Mm. So it's swimming. And then you'd have kempo, which is fist fighting, boxing. And then you'd have kugusoku. Kugusoku is a real one, or kumiuchi, or taijutsu. These are the arts, the names of the arts of the grappling traditions of Japan. They, the word jujitsu didn't really exist. It's a more modern word. Kugusoku is, means combat in armor. Okay, combat in armor. That's the name, meaning you grapple in armor. Now, if Ken, I'm going to ask you a question. If you're wearing a big, fat helmet and I punch you in the face, is that going to really hurt you? No problem. No problem. No. <laughs> so if you're also wearing armor and, um, you know, hey, uh, total truth here, you know, when I was like 12, I loved to dress up in fake <laughs> armor because, you know, I wanted to be a samurai just like everybody else. You know, I'm happy to say that I've kind of let that cosplay part of my personality go. No disrespect to everybody at Comic-Con today. But, um, but you know, it's very cumbersome. And you can't move the same way. The, the, the links of the armor interlock, and they take you with places you don't want to go. You can't move with the same freedom. Try boxing in armor. It's really, really hard. So the leverages, the movement, the, the things that are uh, possible are very, very different. And suddenly, if I'm coming at you with the sword, which is the real, you ask any Aikido guy, it says Aikido footwork is sword footwork. Mm-hmm. So it's based on swordsmanship, right? The footwork. I come at you with the sword. Somehow I block your arm from stabbing me. Okay, suddenly this wrist lock works. And the Aikido have this, like, what they call an arm bar, but it's basically a pin on your elbow, and I'm holding your wrist. And jiu-jitsu guys laugh at it. They just say, it doesn't ever work. That's stupid. I'll just pull my arm out. And yes, it won't work in, in today's modern context. But if you're wearing a heavy, you know, yoroi, Japanese-style armor, your armor's stuck there, and that really freaking hurts. And I only have to hold you there a short period of time because I take my tanto out, my short knife, and I stab you through the armor links, and I kill you, and then that's it. So the context in which that developed is very, very important. And I would say the same thing with many, many Chinese martial arts. Now, I have in-depth research of Japanese martial arts, not so much of Chinese martial arts, but I would say that a lot of the martial arts that don't work are not understood today. And let me get to what I'm saying. And we had this conversation before, but I want the listeners to hear. I've done a lot of researches, and I have a book coming out hopefully someday on this. But I want to do a little thought experiment. Now, Jilson, let's make a thought experiment. Now, let's not. we're not in this world today. We're in, a, in, a, in, a, in this created world. Suddenly, there's no law. Let's say Trump ruined America, and <laughs> the law collapsed, and we're Mad Max world and also, let's say firearms don't exist. Don't exist. We don't have firearms, right? Or you don't have access to it or whatever. And I said, here, I'm going to give you a bunch of martial arts to study. Now, you can choose boxing. You can choose this, this. Okay. You could choose how to use a sword. You could use how to use this. Now, you have to get from here, from New York, because we're in New York now, and you have to get to Newark, New Jersey. You have to get there or to, let's say, D.C., whatever. And I'm going to give you time to study some martial art to keep yourself safe. Would you rather choose boxing or how to use a sword? Now, people will come at you with weapons. So let's, which would you rather choose, boxing or a swordsmanship? I would choose sword. Exactly, right. And you don't have a limited time. It's not like that. It's never been like that. You don't have limited time. So in this world with weapons, so you're primarily going to choose weapon arts. 
Now, the art of the the art that was of the peasantry in Asia and in Europe, no question, was the quarterstaff. Whether it was the nunchaku, which is a broken two-piece quarterstaff, three-section quarterstaff, or a full quarterstaff. If you look at any monk traveling on the roads of ancient, you know, or medieval Europe, what do they have? They have a quarterstaff to keep brigands away. You know, if you have access to steel, well, yeah, of course, a good steel that's not going to break. You're going to get a, you're going to learn how to use a weapon. If you have access to bow and arrow, that's going to be your first thing. The second is the quarterstaff or spear if you're riding a horse. And if you're not, you're going to have a sword. So that's how you're going to orient yourself towards self-defense and combat or, or protect your clan. The most used weapon in all military history has been the spear or the you know, long um, halberd, kind of like this, because it's easily trained, keeps multiple weapons at bay, and you can take peasantry or high-level people, whether you're a knight or samurai or whatever, as a, a spear is a very easy weapon to learn, and that is by far, look at any battlefield or historical, you know, archaeological records, doesn't matter what civilization, people used quarterstaffs and spears. That's it. You know, ancient Greece... Um, ancient China, there's no difference. The rules of, of, of the world have not changed. It's still the same gravity. And as long as you, what has changed is technology or context. Now, if you're a one-on-one person, of course, you're going to start, if you're going to fight guys with weapons, you're going to train weaponry. So if you look at, and I did traditional karate, you know, when I started karate, it was like, okay, we do the hand-to-hand. And then we had to learn the bow staff, and we had to learn the sai, and we had to learn the kama, and we had to learn this, and all these weapons. And I'm like, why am I learning this crap? I don't want to learn this crap. I have to get my, do this to get my black belt, but I freaking hate this crap. You know, I want to learn how to defend myself because I was, you know, a victim of, of some violence in the 80s, and I'm not going to walk around with a bow staff. But it was part of the art, and is this intrinsic part of it. I challenge you to find any Chinese martial art that does not have a detailed weapon style associated with it, whether it's Wing Chun with the butterfly knives, whether it's Tai Chi with Tai Chi sword, whether it's um, Aikido with the Zhou or uh, sometimes samurai swordsmanship itself, they're always linked because honestly, I believe that the unarmed, and I have the data on the Japanese side to prove it, but the unarmed is always an afterthought of the armed because of the nature of the world we all live in today. You know, you're always if you're going to walk around in New York City and you're going to defend yourself, well, you know, you're either going to, you want to conceal carry or you want to have a flip knife. And then if you can't do that because we've pacified our society, okay, then you're going to learn punching and kicking. But if you had your choice, you'd do a concealed carry, you know, because <laughs> it's easier to kill someone with a weapon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's some issues to that. You know, you have to know how to weapon and I'm not, I'm not advocating people get guns or whatever like that. But, um, but you know, that... The, the, you know, that this is common sense, you know. Uh, so I believe that, you know, we say that, 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 that these ancient martial arts evolved, but if you actually look at the only reason why Japanese martial arts in mainland Japan evolved a little bit more is because there was a p- complete pacification of the society and a lot of weapons were taken away and there wasn't any warfare. So, okay, you could travel the roads generally safely, and a lot of the arts that fed into, say, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo tradition, some of them were warfare arts, uh, like we were saying before, but a lot of them are what we call bailiff arts, meaning you were a sheriff, you were arresting someone, you were uh, you know, holding some drunk guy, you were doing some sort of thing, or you were set up in a, um, 
in an area like the, the, the Shogun's headquarters or something like that where weapons were not allowed. If you drew your blade, you would be killed. If that same famous story, you know, the 47 Ronin, you know, the famous story, mm-hmm. the whole reason that, that the, the, their lord was killed is because he drew the blade in the Shogun's presence, you know, in the Shogun's, uh, you know, living area, which was illegal. You can't do that. So, you know, there was a lot of these arts that you're, you're doing where you, you, for whatever reason, social or, or uh, criminal or whatever, the, you know, uh, legal, I should say, that you, you wouldn't be access, have access to weapons or you didn't need access to weapons or you were prevented from having access to weapons. So then unarmed arts developed uh, a little bit more. And that's kind of a lot of what fed into the ground fighting systems that fed into judo, that fed into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But even still, the triangle choke is not an old move. It was invented by Oda Tsunetane at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th century, not this century, of course. There's no historical record anywhere of the submission we saw Ferguson use last night, anywhere before 19, whatever, 19, I forget, the, 1901, 1902, maybe 1899, something like that. There's no historical record of a triangle joke ever, anywhere. That's a new move. That did not exist. So everything, everything existed before. No, not everything. Not everything, because there was no context for a triangle choke. There was no context for it. Why would you need a triangle choke on a battlefield? You know, if you're a bailiff, okay, armbar will do. I don't need to choke the guy unconscious. I need to restrain him, and maybe I break his arm, and then I arrest him, right? So the evolution was not pushed as much because they didn't need to. The context was very different. And if if as we pacified our societies or we created sport prize fighting rings like the Thai boxing ring, which has existed for a long time, originally to uh, give you know, honors to the king, the Siam king, and the same with sumo, the, the, it was a religious ceremony, or uh, performance martial arts like wrestling in the West was a, a folk style thing, a, a festival thing, a performance thing. Um, these developed as rings in sport rings, or they developed in specific scenarios that were unarmed and pacified, and that's only really, really developed in the modern era. And so, if you look at, if you look at, look at, let's think James L. Sullivan boxing in you know 1890. It's you know hands up, let's do them up. The same position was done by ancient karate people, and now the boxing evolved away from it, and some karate people evolved away from it, but. Uh, you know, the evolution is in the, the, the 20th century because there's no reason to evolve boxing. There was no reason to evolve it. Um, so now that's why we have this, this great evolution and we can see the arts getting better and better. And, and, okay, Aikido doesn't work. Well, no. If we were to take the context, the ancient context, it works. And as I said, some of these kung fu styles, you say it doesn't work. Well, guess what? They might work if you put a knife in the guy's hands. If you analyze a lot of martial arts, and like I said, I'm not a kung fu, do do a lot of analysis of kung fu, but I mostly stick to the Japanese traditions, but I've talked to a lot of people, and you can see a lot of the, say, bagua footwork are very analogous to kali footwork, knife and weapon traditions. And if you look at these weird poses that, you know, kung fu guys, you're like, ah, just shoot a double. Mm -hmm. You're not going to shoot a double on a guy who has two machetes in his hand. <laughs> you know, or who is too too short, you know, butterfly knives in his hand or something like that. You're not going to shoot a double. Or, you know, you're not going to put a triangle choke on a guy with an armored helmet because it ain't going to work. <laughs> you know, you're 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 only going to stick to certain pins 
because those are the, only the leverages that are allowed, you know, they're possible. You know, I, I, again, I'm not an expert at Wing Chun, but as I understand that Wing Chun developed, because it's very little, you know, lateral footwork and moving and has some esoteric hand move, movements. And there's this video of, you know, an hour long of Wing Chun guys being beaten up by, you know, modern martial artists, <laughs> you know. But, you know, so why does this stuff exist? Well, you know, they said, well, it's combat. Uh, somebody told me it was two things. It was it was combat in really really tight alleyways, or you know, on the canal ways of the you know cities like Hong Kong, or you know these these places that had these little canals, like you're you know little little boat paddling along, somebody gets you, and a lot of it was like with short knives and butterfly knives and things like that. I'm like, oh, that you know, if I have a knife, this, this stuff, this you know stuff, kind of more makes sense. And uh, and and so context is king. Yeah, it doesn't work because. It's the wrong context. Mm -hmm. And however, the context of modern MMA is also the context of modern fighting as close we can get to to self-defense. Not the same thing, but as close as we get to to, than self-defense and unarmed in an unarmed situation. And even, you know, the leverages, and and Jillson, you're a master at looking at leverages, you can see that, that, that we've improved leverages. So even if... You know, I do the same kind of Kimura lock on a guy who's trying to stab me as I would do in a guy who's just trying to punch me because I just understand that Kimura leverage much better. The, the, the unarmed has made our armed defense much better because I just understand the human body better. And, and if you look at any, any field of human endeavor, from the, let's racing, you know, the, the you know, uh, five minutes, six, seven minute mile or something like that. You know, there's that story where the, nobody broke the... Six minute mile or seven minute mile, I forgot what it was, you know, until a certain point. A hundred meter. A hundred meter, yeah, some, sorry, whatever it was, right, yeah. And then one guy broke it, and then suddenly everybody broke it. And now, 70 years later, it's like, wow, that's so slow. You know, we've always evolved in whether it's track and field, whether it's in baseball or football or any other sport, the evolution of the art of those things as money propels it in prize fighting or people can just focus on that much more because that's that this world we created the evolution of the athlete in the 20th century has been tremendous and we just know much more about the human body and the human athletic condition than we ever did in the 16th century so it's it goes to absolutely it's a fact that martial arts are just better today and everybody who's listening from the traditional arts like ah that's that's so load of crap but open your mind Mm -hmm. and really look at what you do i'm not saying what you do doesn't work given the right context but you might be not training for the right context and you know people used to say in brazilian jiu-jitsu wrist locks don't work well jacare you know the fame of the ufc Mm -hmm. he's got a very famous wrist lock in brazilian jiu-jitsu that would be considered a site of Aikido-style wrist lock, um, although it is obviously in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu too, but it's considered like maybe a little bit more Aikido-like. But he submitted a black belt you know, world champion with it and, and wound on his way to win his world championships in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So if you take some of these moves that so-called don't work and we adjust them to a modern context and evolve them, it, you know, you never know where we could go. And I don't have a closed mind. I always say that for a long time, the number one punch in MMA by the numbers was not the jab. It's not true anymore, but it was true in the beginning. It was not the jab. It was not the cross. It was the hammer fist. You know, the guys in turtle, you hammer fist them. You're passing his guard. You hammer fist them. By the numbers, the hammer fist is a kung fu and karate move. It's not a boxing move. So, you know, I never closed my mar- mind to other martial arts. But at the same time, you have to, as a traditional martial artist, have to look and say, hmm, 
why is my stuff not working? Am I training in the right context? And, you know, if I really want to be functional for a modern context, let me, let me change my context, maybe train a little differently. And you can see Anthony Pettis and some of those guys bringing in Taekwondo after they have a very strong training background in Muay Thai or boxing, which gives you the right training context for modern fighting. You know, training context, how you train, how you move, how you hold pads, this, that, that. Because you can't divorce a martial art from the way you train. And, uh, and, and the modern, more advanced training methods. And you train like this, and you move like this, move like this. Okay, now I can add my jumping, spinning back kick, or I can add my naramang kick, or I can add my, you know, whatever, my oblique kick. Oblique kick, Wing Chun move. You know, I never saw oblique kicks in Thai boxing in the 90s. I don't know, did you guys? You know, the John Jones, you know, sliding oblique kick. You know, the... the this, Not so often. Not yeah, so often. no, no, I, I, I'd never seen it. I mean, I didn't follow it as much. But, you know, you draw from different sources and have an open mind. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm speaking to the people, because I was a karate guy. You were, you, Jilson, you're a karate guy. And, and Ken, didn't you do some traditional arts too as well? Yeah, I, I did. I started out in traditional arts. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, we can, we can say that we respect those traditions, but we, I want to speak to those traditional guys and say, hey, if you, if you want to be real, you have to understand the context is not, especially Aikido guys, because as I said, I, I train Aikido too, you know, like you're training as if you were wearing armor in the 16th century. That context doesn't exist. So that's why that Aikido guy I told you, he went to train with the MMA guy and he just, the MMA guy wasn't even trying and he just, you know, played with him. But I respect him and he's like, hmm, this is very thoughtful, very interesting. And I guarantee he's going to evolve and, and go somewhere else. And maybe, who knows, maybe we'll see some really interesting hybrid moves in the future in MMA. But anyway, that's my take, and, and it's controversial. And, you know, Matt, I told you we, we would get a little controversial today. But I challenge anyone out there in the martial art world to prove me wrong, to prove me wrong that these traditional arts really, really work um, in the context of today. Now, they can work with knives or this or that, but if you, if you get the, you know, the monkey grabs the peaches kind of, you know, old school <laughs> kung fu, like, hey, you're never going to see that crap, you know? And one move that, one thing that really annoyed me, okay, this is really annoyed me, it's from the karate world, and I'll stop and I'll shut up, but there's a video that a karate guy put out, and it's of the karate kata. It's particularly like the teki katas and things like that, and it's like, boom, he's doing the kata, and then they start playing UFC clips of, you see, this is that move working in the UFC. This is that move working in the UFC. This is that move working in the UFC. I'm not saying that that move isn't the that move in the kata, which actually no karate guy would ever ever figure out on his own because they never grapple, so they don't know what the hell they're doing in grappling. That's the truth. You know, I, I did karate for years and I had no understanding of grappling until I went to a grappler, right, and started learning grappling. But you're saying, okay, it's in our forms, but you never train it properly. You never know how to develop that skill set. You never know the 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 methods of developing the footwork. So you're saying it's in the kata, but and somebody's doing it, but the guy doing it is not a karate guy. The guy doing it is a Muay Thai guy. So maybe it's in the kata, but that's meaningless. Maybe it was in your art, but you have no idea how to access that knowledge. And maybe it really wasn't too, I don't know. But that, that video really annoys me. It's, it's circulating in the karate world saying like, oh, you see, we have these moves too. But none of you guys can do it. Your training sucks if that's where you want to fight. If that's where you want to fight, your training is not good. You don't know how to throw, do a double leg takedown. You don't know how to do an Ichimata. There's no karate guy I ever met who didn't, who, without cross-training in judo, who knew how to throw an Uchimata throw. And yet they say in the Tekikata, there's an Uchimata. Or there's a Ippon Serenage, which is a judo hip throw. Like, I've never met a judo karate guy who could, throw, who could do a good hip throw unless he cross-trained. 
And the reason is because judo instructors, and we talked about pedagogy in the last class, judo instructors know how to teach throws really, really well. Ken, one of the reasons I like working with you is you know how to teach striking really, really well. And you know what? I know how to teach grappling really well. So that doesn't mean Brazilian jiu-jitsu doesn't have some striking in it. But you're going to be able to teach a jab 10,000 times better than I ever will because you have so much experience. There's no way a karate guy can teach another karate guy how to do an ichimata as good as a judo guy because they never jumped out of their context. Now, there's a style of karate now called daidojuku, which is a MMA style of karate, and they are changing their context, and I love them. So what they do is every single day, they're doing, actually, they do a lot of boxing, so they, they borrow the training methods of boxing. They borrow the low kicking of kyokushin and, and muay thai. They borrow the footwork of, you know, the fast Western kickboxers. They judo, judo-like judo guys. And they've actually recruited a huge number of judo instructors to work with them. And they have a ton of Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys teaching their guys how to fight on the ground. And it's basically MMA, karate. But they're changing their context, and they're evolving, and these guys are really tough. And in the second UFC, of course, he lost to Royce Gracie, but they had uh, Ichihara, and Ichihara was a member of that style. Now, of course, he lost to, lost to, to Royce Gracie, but he had, people don't realize he won some fights before that, and he, as a karate guy, he had a, had a pretty good showing, and they've even put some people in Thai boxing fights, and, and, and um, Sammy Schilt, who won the UFC, it was a, actually representative of that style. And they have so, so were a number of people you don't realize that got started in that style. And it's their karate background, but they're changing their context. They're evolving and growing. I have so much respect for that and for um, their, their, their head of their organization. He's a very open-minded guy, and it goes back to that, okay, we have this thing that we're going to protect, shoe, we're going to break it, and then we're going to evolve further. And... and you know, I'm speaking to the to old, old martial artists out there. It's like, you got to, yes, you can protect what you know, but try and understand what it is. Break out of that and then evolve further. We can all evolve together. Maybe we'll doing some, some interesting Wing Chun. It's funny, just last thing. This, you know, Wing Chun doesn't really work a little bit, but I found some context in, in, in some of the people in the Dog Brothers world, too. They, they, they integrate a little bit in Chun, Wing Chun and, um, in their weapon kind of combat, right? But in the guard... When you're hand fighting, it looks a lot like the Wing Chun trapping. And I have a student who's a Wing Chun instructor, and he's like, hey, I do this. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Let me play around with it. And some of it has worked for me. So you know what? Never have a closed mind. Never. It's all about context. Yeah, boxing and, and movement like that works in, in the cage. But let's see You know, if we can draw from the Taekwondo world to do an Anthony Pettis, if we can draw from the Judo world to do a Demetrius Johnson, if we can draw from the Taekwondo background, background to do a Yair Rodriguez move, if we can draw from the karate world to do a Lyota Machida move, and, and just take striking. Because I know, Ken, you don't talk what about what you do as Muay Thai, you talk about striking. Right. Take striking and evolve it. And I'm taking grappling involved, but you know what, I'm not even interested in grappling, I'm interested in involving fighting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> and hitting my mic inappropriately. Anyway, I'm going to shut up, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on what I said, and because I just talked too much, I'm going to shut up for yeah, about it ten. It was minutes. a very short. Uh, so let's see if, <laughs> if you can remember you know, everything that was said. <laughs> I remember the theme was context. Yes, context. That's very okay. So let's stay in, in the context of context. <laughs> I believe that it's a. It, I believe that there is a, a lot to do with mindset 
and uh, and uh, Coach Rene knows me as well uh, as a strength coach, and I have been involved with psychology and neuroscience for over 20 years. And while training my athletes is something that it, you know it's important to to know because sports psychology is important to understand why an athlete, a fighter, sim- simply freezes when he she has all the resources to just do a killing. So I think that my feedback in terms of context is about psychology. It's about sports psychology because you cannot advance without an open mind. What we call a flexible mindset. There are people, they have what we call fixed mindset. And these people are the traditional ones, conservatives. No, no, this is the best and has been proven to be the best for the last 200 years without considering that, look around you. See how much we involved. Did we have cars 200 years ago driving down North Carolina? I don't think so. So anything that we learned in the last even century, as uh, Coach Rene was referring to the quote-unquote traditional martial arts, many of them that actually just came in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. And they will still call them traditional, but it's not because of the, how long they've been around. I believe that we call them traditional because it, they just look more respectful. Mm-hmm. People, has, people have a respect. They, before step onto the, onto the, the, the tatami, mm-hmm. they, oh, they bow to the sensei, senpai, they, bam, they, they, they bow to the, the instructors. And it, there is no cursing on the mat. Right, right, right. When, before it's, more, you, it's more about attitude. Before, than yes. Before you're walking out of the, the, the tatami, then you bow again. When you leave at the door, you bow, say, oh, and then you go. So people call, what people may call traditional, I think is more based on the respect that they have while at the dojo, at the academy, at the, not how long it's been around. Yeah, yeah. So... It, my, my take on the context is, of course, it's, uh, it's uh, as I mentioned before, it has to do with your ability to let it go, your belief that what you know is the absolute truth. Once you let that go, and before I said that it was a matter of a responsibility from the coaches, and I repeat, and I, I stand behind my, my perspective, because you are the one taking care of those, the new generation. And so if you're not open-minded, they will not be open-minded. Because you train hundreds of students yearly, or even through your first two years of your, the, day, the day that you opened your gym. So you train 300 people. You came across 300 people, and now how many people did you really influence with the open-mindedness? That's your responsibility. And we will evolve based on how you coaches evolve. Your own mindset is what sets the tone to the fighting. What we are going to, Coach Rene will refer to, is not MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's fighting. It's survival on the street. We will evolve as much as you open your mind to what is happening around you. I'm not imposing, no one is imposing anything on you or against your 
traditional ways of saying things. All I'm asking you is stop, look outside the window, and realize this is not 1923 anymore. Yeah, or 1623. And what you are doing right now is a disservice to your students. That's my perspective, and as we say in Brazil, I sign it right below because it's in a statement. You're doing a disservice <laughs> for your students. Please yeah. don't drop the mic, but I think that's an appropriate drop the mic statement right there. And Professor Gatt, I'd love to hear your Gilson thoughts. out. <laughs> I mean, first I'd like to say uh, that, Professor Gilson, I can tell already that you make an amazing coach. Just by saying that, you obviously care about your student, and you are looking for the betterment of your student. You know, so, uh, telling them to have an open mind, telling them to seek more knowledge, uh, telling them to think for themselves. Not every coach is like that. You are actually in the rarity, I believe. And same for you, Professor uh, Renee. You guys are in the rarity. Many coaches, they kind of just want to keep everything in-house. And they want their students to follow what they say as gospel. Yeah, they, yeah. Do, they want that. It's insecurity. And, yeah. and a lot of students, you know, it, it, it sounds easy to have an open mind. But most people I counter, they don't want to have an open mind, especially the ones in martial arts. Mm. They don't want to have an open mind. Because now, like we talked about before, Professor Renee, you're going to burst their bubble. You're going to burst their bubble of comfort. You know, they've trained for 10 years, they have the black belt and whatever. They don't want to know they can't defend themselves. Nobody wants to know that. But many of these schools, um, like McDojo's or what have you, you ask them to defend themselves, they cannot. They ask them to defend their loved ones, they also cannot. But, you know, I mean, if you want to do it for exercise, I get it. If you want to do it to preserve arts, it's a, a, a fun thing to do. I also get it. It's better to be, uh, you know, out moving around than just sitting on your couch. Right, you know? right, so right. Yeah, that I'm, is your purpose. I have no, no problem with people doing lion dance yeah. for culture reasons yes. or something like that. That's not, that's not what we're talking yeah. about here. Yeah, right. we're talking about you're saying you, your stuff works, yeah. and it doesn't. So I, Not I, you, I mean, you I, know, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I feel that the, both of you as coaches are amazing coaches because you are not selfish. And that's how a coach should be. A coach shouldn't be selfish. A coach should not be selfish. Our roles is to improve people's lives. You know, so, you know, that's what I have to say about that. And uh, going back, uh, speaking about open mind, though, I always thought I had an open mind. You know, you know not everyone's as self-aware as you guys, but uh, I thought I was self-aware, but I'm not. Because a lot of times, uh, like, I came from traditional Chinese martial arts, and I'd be like, ah, traditional Chinese martial arts, bullshit. But when you, when you told me about they are weapons arts, and I always kind of knew that in the back of my mind, but when you said it to me, I was like, that is so true. They are entirely weapon arts. They're weapons arts. So that makes sense. Like, if you need to defend your village, you're not going to use your hands. You can pick up the nearest thing to you, and then you're going to fight for your life, fight for your family's life. Mm -hmm. So that being said, you know, now I have a completely different view of Chinese martial arts, that it can be very effective, but like you said, in the context, in the context of those times, with those you know surroundings and environment, you know. So I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna put down, you know, traditional Chinese martial arts again. And it's funny. Uh, a couple of months back, or maybe even half a year ago, there was a at some amateur MMA fighter in China. And yeah, we he, talked about him in the other yeah, podcast. Yeah, I, I don't know if he's any good. I don't know anything about he's him. He's all self-trained. He's completely self-trained. Completely self-trained. Yeah. And just beat down this old Tai Chi master. Yeah. Well, actually, no, I think they're about the same age. The Tai Chi guy just look old. But <laughs> I think they're around the same age. But he just beat him <laughs> you, down you need, you need to have that beard to, <laughs> like, to look legit. <laughs> in like 10 seconds. <laughs> and I'm like, now I'm thinking, like, man, why'd you have to, it's like, why don't you let this guy live? You know, why do you have to go <laughs> and mess him up? You know, and I, I think he probably lost a lot of students because of that. Yeah. But uh, that was kind of that was kind of crazy. But on a side note, I think I don't know if it's still out, but like a Chinese billionaire 
put a kind of a bounty on the guy's head. It's it supposed was, to be still out. Yeah, is yeah, it still yeah. out? He actually had to go in hiding because he had death threats. The 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 the, the MMA, MMA fighter. Guy, yeah, yeah. He had death threats. Yeah, yeah. And he had to go in hiding. And even the Chinese premier Xi Jinping guy weighed in on the story. Xi Jinping weighed in on the story. He's like, this guy, the MMA guy, yeah. is a disgrace. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah, you know, yeah. there's martial arts are so connected to our national identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you say boxing, what country? England, mm. Ireland, you know, boxing. Yeah. You say t- kickboxing, America, or you say Dutch, 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 Dutch. Yeah, I mean, uh, Muay Thai, Dutch Muay Thai. You, you, but you say you say Taekwondo. Um, Korea. You know, Korea. You like if you you go to you go to old like this happened to me in Japan. I'll tell you a story that I was I was living with these very nice family, very nice people. Okay, real really wonderful people. I, Until- nothing against. No, 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 no. They were they were really wonderful. Where's the the, Mr. 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 And Mrs. Nakazawa. They were just absolutely fantastic people, and I love their daughter to death. She's such a wonderful, amazing artist. She's great. Their whole family's great, and their son too. So I was living with them because I wanted to learn Japanese, and you know, I'm sitting down at the table, and their father, Mr. Nakazawa, this is gonna make it look a little bad, but he never trained. He'd never trained judo before, except okay. maybe like a little bit in you know junior high school, you sure. know p- physical education class. But he's like, he's like, yeah, this is what judo is. And I'm like, at this point, I've been training you know seven hours a day yeah. minimum for a year, six days a week, mm-hmm. every single day, nonstop, Christmas, like every day. And he's like lecturing me, no, 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 let me tell you, white boy, this is what (laughs) judo is. And I'm sitting there like, I'm like, oh, you must be like, you know, shodan, nidan, sandan, something like that. You must be really, I'm like, yo, where do you train? He's like, no, I don't train, I never train. I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) But of course, being respectful, there was this, but he lectures me for an hour because his cultural pride would not allow Mm. a foreigner to outdo him in judo knowledge. And and so our martial arts are so tightly wedded to our national pride, and even even boxing, like you know, there's there's so many or whatever sport, there's so many sports that America, like basketball, like America at the Olympics, we can't lose yeah. in basketball at the yeah, Olympics, yeah. or you know, we our national identities are wrapped up here. And I've been lectured by many people of of uh, the same many people of many races that we like they. I said your Chinese martial arts are not as good as Japanese martial arts, and they just get incredibly oh, offended. Course, and this, course, this is not yeah. people who train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They just get offended. Like, how could you disgrace our culture, yeah. or, or you know, whatever? So you know, sometimes we, we your nationalism takes takes that place and, and blinds you because you wrap up your identity in so many s- s- uh, peripheral things. Like, okay, I'm I'm American, so. You know, this has to do with baseball or basketball or whatever. Like, I'm Korean, so Taekwondo, you know, I'm going to be in a Taekwondo bandwagon or something like that. We have so many things that we wrap into our identities. So it's very hard when somebody says, this thing you're doing wrong, to separate that as, this is not a personal attack. It's just, I'm telling you, this is not right. But you as a person are totally different. As a personal attack, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying maybe you could refine that. But it's very hard for people to, you know, if I studied, and this happened to me, you know, if I studied karate for, you know, so many years, I'm so wedded to the karate world or the judo world or whatever, to let that go and say, yeah, what I did was not working. God, that's that's ego crushing. It's not easy. But I had to do it because I was getting the crap kicked out of me. (laughs) And I wasn't, I'm not the type of person to put my head in the sand just generally. And I thank my father for raising me like that. He's like, look, look at the data. data. And um, I think we're all like that. And and Jilson, you're a tremendous karate man. 
and also a kickboxer, but you didn't stay in the traditional world. You always looking looking at a different place with open mind. With open, open mind, mind. yeah, yeah. You can that. be traditional and modern at the same time. Traditional values, but modern technique. You, you don't have to lose your the heart of uh, the samurai or the way of the samurai because you do a Dominic Cruz hip, you know, shoulder bump. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, the samurai wouldn't do a shoulder bump, but it's the attitude. The, 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 the cool thing, that's one thing that like, some of the MMA fighters don't like is they don't act respectfully. But that's one reason I like Demetri Johnson. He's a very respectful guy. I can, I can relate to him. I'm Machida too. Love Machida. Very respectful. Same with uh, uh, George St. Pierre. Just amazing traditional martial artist. But his technique is super high level and cutting edge. I'm sorry, but go ahead. No. Two things. Uh, the first is when it comes to identity. There is no stronger no stronger drive in human psychology than identity. Mm-hmm. You behave according to who you think you are and the values that you believe that you are, that embodies you, that you're made of. That's the first thing. So when it comes to nationalism that we're talking about, you can go to several countries and they, they have that pride that identity, no, I am this, I am that, great. Now, for me, it's like there is, for, that's, I take responsibility for what I say, it's like for me, bear like ignorance, and I'll say why. You are defending martial arts, and you never trained. <laughs> it's like, it's like crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. So, it starts there. So, it's like, I, Brazilian. Grew up, of course, born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, surrounded by jiu-jitsu players, jiu-jitsu fighters. And, but I never trained jiu-jitsu. I did, but I'm going to say that. That's, pretend that I never trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And somebody says something negative in relation to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. What do you mean? Royce just won the 1993 <laughs> UFC. We are the best. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu is the best because Brazil are the hardest, the, the, the toughest fighters in the world. Sounds great, but you sound dumb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know why? Because you can back it up. Your talk, your cheap talk. That's why we cheap talking and you can back it up. So then you just look dumb. That's my perspective. But you have the identity and as I said, so identity is the strongest, really strongest drive in human psychology is what you believe that you are made of. And to the second point that Coach Rene, in relation to when you are a... Let me put it this way. Honor, respect, is not owned by any country. It's not owned by any culture. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you say, no, this is the code of samurai. This is a Japanese code. And I say, okay. Uh, do you train? No. Uh, do you carry the values of the code? No. Don't. you got to really stop talking. <laughs> because code of samurai is not... Who is embracing it is if you are embracing it and behaving accordingly. If you're not, you gotta shut up. Yeah, because yeah, you look like dumb and weak. No, but also you know we 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 use the samurai as a shorthand, but you could easily you know talk about Epictetus or you could talk about any any of the Marcus Aurelius. You could talk about great human values. Yes, and it doesn't have to be Asian or Western. It could be African. 
uh, it could be uh, uh, some of the great wisdom of the Native Americans or, or Native peoples of South America. You, great human values are great human mm-hmm. values. But I think I just I just mentioned the code of samurai because it's this shorthand in martial mm-hmm. arts, you know. But it's also doing a disservice to the great Chinese ma- masters and the great you know Harang Do tradition of Korea. You know the, the 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 knights of Korea. You know the great human values are great human values. So I, I totally agree with you. I am I am an American Indian, okay, and and as such I bring because you mentioned American, yeah, uh, Native American. But I see myself and I classify myself as an American Indian. And if you ask some of the old school chiefs, if you will, and I say, okay, so what is to be a warrior? Because we do have the image that warrior is the one who fights. You know, he has martial knowledge, experience. is about fighting, killing. Okay, that's one perspective. There is another perspective, which is protection. And warrior, in my interpretation of what that means as a, as a, as a warrior, as I see myself, my identity, if you will, is I protect those who cannot protect themselves. That's why I go to fight. That's why we go, we go to, we did the wars that we've done. Is because we were protecting our culture. Yes, my protect our family, protect our wives and kids. It's not about the fighting. Originally, from my perspective, is about protecting protecting those who cannot protect themselves. For me, that's the core of warriorship. No, absolutely. Because you look at every martial art that I've discovered. Is every martial art that I've researched has come out of the tradition of the clan, or the the the, the uh, or the the the, the 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 fief, or whatever to protect. Your loved ones and your 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 kinship group. It was never a selfish thing. It was never I'm the man. I'm Conor McGregor. Blah blah blah. I'm you know John Jones. Jones. Whatever. It's it's let me learn these arts of war to make peace and to protect my loved ones. And and that's that's the code. You know they say that um it's it, it's naturally selfless. Like you were talking, you can't be, you shouldn't be selfish. Coach, martial arts to me is always about giving, and and it, it it's in that tradition. You uh, and and it's funny. One of the things I like about our academy is that at every belt, everybody helps each other all the time. I walked on the mat the other day, and everybody was like coaching the more junior students. I didn't even have to tell them that, you know. Not that our academy is the best academy in the world. I mean, Professor Ken, you have an amazing academy too, you know. But I'm just very proud of my students that they they understand that it's about giving. Mm-hmm. It's not about being yo. I'm a fighter, and you know, so many fighters are selfish. They they're me 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 and so narcissistic. The martial arts path. All martial arts path is the path of protecting, and what is protection? It's giving safety to people. It's giving. It's 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 the act of giving, and and you know people find that you know, oh MMA it's so barbaric and blah 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 blah, but you know I, I found almost all the MMA fighters that I worked with have been, you know very pacifistic, very cool, very in tune. With them. Let them do yoga or this or that. Not all of them, of course, there's some jerks too, but I mean, the real technical ones that I respect and that I met, they're very, very cool guys, not, not unlike yourselves. You know, it's some of the most wonderful people I've ever met through the martial world. And because we understand that it's always about being selfless and giving. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed that about your academy, uh, Professor Renee, like all your students, they are, they are very, uh, well, I mean, stems from the master, it trickles down from the master. They seem very selfless and they do want to help. They have a genuine, genuine like, uh, attitude of helpfulness. Uh, it was funny because uh, the other day I had a, a, a new guy come into my academy. And I had one of my students work with him. He's like, "Oh, I got to work with the new guy because I want to. I want to get a workout in." 
Mm-hmm. So I, I go to him, is that the martial arts way? He's like, no. You know, and he was you know, being kind of selfish. And then, I, you know, so I had him work with the new guy anyway. And the thing is, when I, when I first like, started, like uh, my, my teacher, Koban, every time a new guy would come in, he would always have me help him out. And because of that, that's why I got good, that's why I got good at coaching. Yeah. And that's how I started understanding martial arts more, because he had me help coach other people. And I always thank him for that because, uh, you know, like a lot of, uh, I owe so much to that man, uh, my mentor. But, uh, but that's the reason why. And I was explaining to him, like, when you help others, you actually are gaining experience yourself in learning how to coach. And I, when you're coaching, like, new things will come to you, new ideas, just from the fact, act of doing it. In the middle of doing it, things will appear in your mind. You know, like, uh, new ways to do something more efficiently because as you're coaching, it just comes to you. Yeah. You know, but... Uh, but yes. It's a, from a purely selfish perspective, teaching yeah. is great. But, you know, I, I, I was very lucky to have some great Japanese, great mentors in Brazil, Japan. But, and um, none of them charged me any money. Mm-hmm. They were just teaching me because they said, I'm one link in a chain. And I can say, I trained under Professor Hirata Kanai. And he trained under this guy, this guy, this guy. And I actually can see the lineage all the way back to centuries. Mm. And I'm one chain, chain that link, and I want my students to be the next chain and to give, 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 and evolve the art and, and also just do something socially beneficial, you know? Uh, just, just be a positive aspect of society. But, you know, you have to, to, to be a giver. And that's, that's my biggest criticism with MMA. And I love MMA as the paradigm of to see what works. But we see it orienting much more to prize fighting, and you see that narcissistic side yes. much more because a fighter has to be a little bit selfish. Yeah. A little bit selfish. He's to think about himself for a little bit. But I like that you can when the guys who can turn it off. Okay, I'm in camp. I'm a little selfish, but then I turn it off, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, be, um, you know, be be not selfish now. You know, and and I heard some things about I have someone who trains um, in Dominic Cruz with Dominic Cruz's gym. You know. And I heard that he is always on hand. He doesn't run classes, but he's always on hand giving tips and coaching and this and being really, really accessible to every new member of the team and being amazing at helping people out. And he doesn't run a class per se, as, as I heard it, but he's always there as a resource to help people out. And I'm like, that guy is the man. Amazing, yeah. He doesn't lose sight of the fact that it's... And then, you know, for the, the better your training partners get, the, the more they, they, they bite at your heels and beg you better, too, you know? But, but just giving is a, is a good thing. It makes you feel good, you know? I, I like teaching even more than I like competing, you know? And I did enjoy my competition. I mean, obviously, sometimes fighting sucks, but, you know, like getting knocked out and stuff. But, you know, or training or the training, the grind or whatever. And winning's great. But the, the, the process of fighting was always a great thing for me. I, I really felt that I was achieving my, my potential as a martial artist, or reliving my potential, but but now as a teacher, I'm so lucky to be uh, in such a blissful place that I I I go I don't work I don't work I I'm just loving my life. This I never come to work. This is my dojo. It's not work. Mm-hmm. It's it's passion. It's bliss. It's just my happy place. I I don't work a day in my life, <laughs> except you know okay sometimes doing the books and stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that stuff sucks. But <laughs> paying the utility bill. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, whenever yeah. I can ask Mariko to do it, it yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. My wonderful wife, please. Yeah. Would you mind? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to take a nap. <laughs> I have a, a, a private ride, fifteen yeah. minutes. Yeah, that's right. Actually, she does help out a lot. Right? You know, she got mad at me because I, I talked a story about her in the last podcast. Yeah. But I have to say, my wife is amazing, and she helps out. And and you know, the academy wouldn't be what it is without her. And 
you know, so hopefully she'll forgive me for the last <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and we definitely have to be grateful for all the support we get. Yeah, exactly. Especially right. what we do. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this has been a great conversation. I've been honored to be in the same room as, as you, you three gentlemen. Uh, a lot of knowledge here. Uh, I'm running out of hard drive space, though, so we have to start wrapping it up. Um, before we end, I want to go around the room and just ask um, the next UFC, Bisping, GSP. I want reactions, gut reactions. I don't want. To, we're not going to go on a, an hour tangent about who's going to win and all that kind of stuff. But Renee, who's awesome. going to win? GSP. Okay, Joseph. GSP. Ken? I'm going to say GSP, and part of that reason is uh, Bisping's making too many movies right now. His, his attention's <laughs> too split. Okay. He's in movies? Yeah. No kidding. He's got this new movie coming out with Tony Jaa and the guy from The Raid and uh, Michael Jai White, and then he just did like the Triple X movie. Yeah. He's just making too many movies. Yeah. His attention is split. And, and you know, Demetrius, uh, Dominic Cruz said there's no such thing as ring rust. And there is, but certain athletes don't have it. I think GSP will not have that much ring rust. Mm-hmm. Because he, the guy loves, he's a martial artist. Because even when he stopped competing, he never stopped training because he lives the life of a, of a, of a man of Budo who's like discipline. I guarantee, even outside of camp, he was eating healthy. You know, even outside of his life, he's just, he's not a guy to like let his body go and get really super fat, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think he just needed some time to let a ton mm-hmm. of injuries heal and recapture his fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anyway, that's, yeah. I'm going to be the outlier and say business. I apologize. No, not at all. Well, can we make a bet on it and make it interesting? Sure. Okay. You see, you said you want to get choked out, so if you lose, we get to choke you out. How's that? Do I get to pick who chokes? <laughs> yes, you get to pick any of the <laughs> Wait, I'm going to win. So okay, how about you? you, you Ken has a nasty low kick. Ken, if Ken, if you, you choose Ken, he low kicks you. Jilson will put you through the most horrendous conditioning workout ever, or me, I get to choke you out. So you could pick who. who, who. The conditioning workout's <laughs> to his benefit, though. That's right. <laughs> right. I, I went on that one. Uh, not if you have a cardiac arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bisman, Matt if you're like listening this to this, please win. Um, so thanks, everybody, for coming and, and being part of this podcast. Um, hopefully we can all get together again uh, at some point, maybe even uh, in the next UFC. We'll, we'll, uh, Wonderful. These guys, I am so honored to share the table and the mats with these amazing the honors guys. honor is all mine. Yeah. And you, uh, can you have a, uh, an academy? I have an academy in uh, Brooklyn, uh, uh, downtown Brooklyn. Okay. Class 1 MMA, right by the Barclays Center. Class 1 MMA, all right. Justin, are you involved in any, are you training actively with anybody? Uh, to be honest, uh, when I do train, it's because I'm here at the Radical MMA. Uh, I've been assisting G, our MMA fighter, to get ready as well, do some sparring. And so that's what I actually you can find me would be around here. All right. yeah. And if you ever need any um, expertise on psych, uh, marketing psychology or SEO, Jilson mm-hmm. has become a master in that realm, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Important skills. Yeah, <laughs> man of tremendous skills. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please uh, rate us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud. Find us everywhere. Share the show so everybody can find us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Marshall underscore culture and on Instagram at Marshall culture cast. Please leave a review on iTunes and we'll see you next time on the Marshall culture podcast.